Hello and welcome to the Lancet Infectious Diseases December 2008 podcast. I'm Erica Niesner here with John McConnell, editor of TLID. We're looking at three papers today that are being presented at the Healthcare Associated Infections Conference in London at the QE2 Centre on December 11th and 12th. For more information, do see thelancet.com. Let's start with the article on Clostridium difficile infection diagnosis and toxin detection kits. It's a systematic review looking at commonly used commercial assays. Can you tell us about the diagnostic methods that are currently used? Well, the method that's currently used, Erica, is um, something called the toxin test, which is done on stool samples. And it's a range of different enzyme-based immunoassays produced by several different uh, manufacturers. Uh, and the idea is that you detect the toxins produced by the bacteria in people's stool samples. Uh, and obviously, if they, uh, the test comes up positive, then you have a, a fairly good indication that that person is uh, infected with the, uh, the C. diff organism in their bowel. The surveillance and management of the infection relies on the sensitivity and specificity of the test. What are the implications of tests being less specific and less sensitive? Yeah, well, these are very key questions. So the sensitivity of the test means how likely is the test to uh, detect a positive result if the person genuinely is infected. The specificity is a measure of how the test will separate a positive from a negative and specifically for C. difficile, what are the implications of low specificity yeah. and sensitivity? Well, so for example, if you classify somebody as being uh, positive for C. diff, then you will treat them with particular antibiotics. You may well cohort them with other patients who've got the disease. Uh, if, they're not, uh, if they're not infected, then you give them the wrong sort of antibiotic or you put them in a room with other people who are genuinely infected. Then obviously you're vastly increasing the, the, the chances of them becoming infected. On the other hand, if you misclassify them as being, if the test mis misclassifies the person as being negative and they are actually infected with C. diff, then you won't give them the right antibiotics and the right sort of management strategy at all. And that, of course, well, could have very important implications for their future well-being. Now, this was a systematic review and it looked at a range of commercial assays. Mm -hmm. How did the commercial assays perform? Well, the author's conclusion is that they didn't perform particularly well. So, for example, a measure called the positive predictive value was only about 50% in, uh, in uh, many cases. Now, the positive predictive, predictive value is a measure of what proportion of positives are true positives. So say in a sample of 100, you have three that are positive, so that your test finds those three uh, because it's, a, it's a, a sensitive test. But because it's not very specific, it also finds another three uh, which who, who are not genuinely positive, but the test says are positive. Then your positive predictive value is only about 50%. Out of the six positives, only 50% of those are real positives. So with that sort of positive predictive value, that means that half the time you're going to be mistreating many of your patients. The authors suggest that obviously we, we could do with some better tests, which are much more sensitive and uh, particularly more specific. But they do suggest a strategy for dealing with this problem, which is a kind of two-step process. So what you would do is you would screen everybody who you suspect of having C. diff with one of the current enzyme immunoassay toxin tests. Those that come out positive, you would then submit them to a second test, something like a cell-based test, which you like is the, the gold standard. Um, and then you could truly determine if they are positive. So you need a two-step process for determining if people really are positive for C. diff. Uh, if they come out positive by the first step in the process, then you would manage them as such. 
Uh, but if in a few days' time in the gold standard test show that they weren't indeed weren't truly positive, then you, you could change that management. So a two-step approach may well be where we have to go, which obviously will have cost implications, but it uh, may save costs because it will reduce inappropriate treatment. And is this the approach that the authors suggest? This is the approach the authors suggest, and they say that they are trying it in their own institution as well. Our next article is about antimicrobial central venous catheters, and it's a systematic review and meta-analysis by Casey et al. Tell us a bit about central venous catheters and why antimicrobial ones might be beneficial. Yeah. Well, central venous catheters are used to infuse fluids, for example, antibiotics, um, and they're, they're implanted and they're kept in semi-permanently while, while the person is under treatment. They do need to be replaced perhaps from time to time. So they have a very important role. However, they are recognized as the principal source of bacteremia. So of all the factors in a person's treatment that you can associate with the acquisition of a, of a bacteremia, then the presence of a central venous catheter is by far the most important. So what happens with a CDC is that a biofilm grows up on it. So these are various proteins which uh, come from the bloodstream, for example, um, and they coat the surface of the catheter and they form a biofilm. And that biofilm can become colonized with bacteria. And it's those bacteria which can then break off and cause um, bloodstream infections. So that's the mechanism by which catheter-related bloodstream infections occur. So the idea is with these uh, antimicrobial central venous catheters is that you coat them with uh, an antiseptic or an antibiotic and uh, by so doing you prevent the bacteria from colonizing and growing in the biofilm. What can we tell from the results about the future use of antimicrobial CVCs? Well, the authors, as many do when they do a systematic review, conclude that the data that are available aren't that brilliant. But they do come to a useful conclusion, which is that there is a role for um, antimicrobial central venous catheters. But the, they should really only be used when all the standard infection control interventions have been applied and you're still, and an institution is still not getting its rate down of bloodstream infections down to what's considered acceptable. So they do have a role, but the role is perhaps uh, quite limited at the moment. And finally, we're looking at a review on multidrug-resistant Acinetobacter baumannii infections. Can you outline for us what A. baumannii infections are and how they're transmitted? Yeah, well Acinetobacter baumannii is a, a gram-negative bacteria. Uh, it certainly colonises environmental sources, so you can find it in soil, foods, uh, or meat, fish. You can you can find it pretty commonly in the environment. However, it can become a human pathogen, and when it does become a human pathogen, it can cause uh, pneumonias, bacteremias, uh, surgical site infections, and skin and soft tissue infections, and also urinary tract infections as well. So it it can be quite a a serious pathogen. And I think the uh, the important point that this review is looking at is that this organism is becoming increasingly resistant to many of the classes of antibiotics which we've been using commonly up until now. And what infection control measures are currently in place? Yes, well, you should really be looking at the, the sort of infection control measures that apply to almost all healthcare-associated infections. 
which is such things as contact precautions, uh, hand hygiene. Obviously, hand hygiene is, is crucially important because this is an organism which uh, thrives in environmental sources. Then environmental cleaning is extremely important. And then another intervention that's common across most healthcare associated infections, which is to isolate patients who are infected or colonized. And to uh, and if you can't isolate them individually, then you should at least put patients who share the infection together in, in small units. So you, co- you cohort patients with the infection in small groups. And what about treatment as it's a multi-drug resistant organism? What remaining options are there for treatment? Well, the standard treatment has been um, a class of antibiotics called the carbapenem. So there's such things as imipenem and meropenem. However, um, increasingly strains of uh, abamania are no longer susceptible to the to the carbapenems and and to other classes of drugs which have uh, traditionally been used such as the sulbactams so what we're getting down to is using the polymyxin antibiotics now these are antibiotics which were really discarded from uh, use in the 1960s because they were thought to be far too toxic for routine use but they're coming back into fashion again because they're, for, for some strains of Baumannia, there is very little else. So, for example, polymyxin E, which is also known as colistin, has been used in small trials and has been used to treat patients on a passionate basis outside trials. And by and large, the effect of polymyxin in treating Baumannia has been clinically very favourable. The problem, of course, we still have to deal with the toxicity issue, of course, although that seems to be not such a problem as it was thought to be back in the 1960s, which is, which is very interesting. Maybe we're just better at managing toxicity issues these days than we were. And I think the other real issue is that this drug has not yet, or these class of drugs, the polymyxins, have not been tested for abaumanii infection in, in large randomized trials. And the reason for that is, I think, money, as always, is that the polymyxins are available generically, so you don't have a wealthy drug company behind them promoting them and therefore willing to finance a trial of them. Along the way, we need to find a way of doing some proper trials of the polymyxins in abaumanii infection, and we need to find a way of, uh, of financing them. And in the longer term, abaumanii highlights the fact that we really don't have a good range of new antibiotics to treat grand